Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, a study is going to be taking place looking at the migration patterns of people moving from Toronto to Hamilton and gentrification. Dr. Brian Doucet leads the study. He's going to join us and talk about it. An injunction that was lifted this week has Hamilton City Council wanting to clear encampments for the downtown. We'll get into the ramifications of that. Are we heading into a runaway train of cases for COVID-19 with this second wave? It's pretty concerning, isn't it? And, of course, a study from Western University looks at the home workplace, whether it's healthy, and how to get people up and moving again during this pandemic. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We know for the longest time right now that uh, there have been a number of people from the uh, GTA that have moved to the Hamilton area for a variety of reasons. However, uh, that leads to... Well, a word called gentrification, which may be familiar to, may not. Dictionary uh, definition of that is the process of making a person or activity more refined or polite or renovating and improving a house or district so that it conforms to middle-class taste. Is it good? Is it bad? Well, you know what? We're going to find out when a study is finally completed. It's a study that's going to be taking place over a long period of time about the migration patterns of people that are moving from the Toronto area to Hamilton. Uh, the, Dr. Brian Doucette, uh, the Canadian Research Chair in Urban Change and Social Inclusion, is also an Associate Professor in the School of Planning at the University of Waterloo, and he'll be heading this study. And he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, D- Brian, thank you for the time. Glad to have you with us on the show today. No problem. Thank you for having me on your show. Well, you know, we've seen this happening, Brian, over the last number of years. And, you know, we talked with real estate agents about what's happening and where are all people coming from. It's Toronto. And I I think, you know, but most of the information we have on this is anecdotal. So this is a very timely study. Well, that's just it. I mean, I think in, in southern Ontario, you know, sometimes you get the impression that everyone knows someone who knows someone who's moved to Hamilton. And you're right. We hear stories about it all the time, but we don't have any concrete data on the migration patterns, nor do we really have a clear understanding of why people are making this move. There's any number of reasons why, and again, a lot of this comes through anecdotally, but this is one of the biggest um, sort of patterns of urban change in the greater Golden Horseshoe, and so we need to know a little bit more about what's driving it, how much uh, movement is actually happening, and, and what the impact is. I, I know from your comments uh, from the press release uh, that we talked about uh, uh, that I, the, the first reaction a lot of people are going to have, Brian, is oh, it's got to be price. I mean, who can afford a house in Toronto these days? And, and that certainly is a factor, but, you, but the, I, I get the indication that you feel there's a lot more to it. It's, it's a lot deeper than that. Well, exactly. And price, I think, is, is a major factor, right? Because you can get the, the, the same type of house in Hamilton for a lot cheaper than you can in Toronto, as you can here in, in Kitchener-Waterloo, where I live, where mm-hmm. we see some of this happening as well. But there's also this idea of an urban aesthetic. So an older, walkable neighborhood, you know, older houses, mixed use, um, not a car-dependent community. And if you think of the Greater Golden Horseshoe, you think of the GTHA, and you think of where you can do that, where you have that kind of environment, outside of the core of Toronto, there really aren't that many places. Most of the Greater Golden Horseshoe is built in, in sort of post, post-war, auto-oriented uh, communities. And so if you want that walkable environment, you want that older aesthetic, um, the, the, the lower city of Hamilton is one of the few places where you have that in abundance. So one of the things we want to find out is, are people drawn, yes, because of price, but also because of the, the qualities of the urban environment that Hamilton offers that few other places within commuting distance of, of downtown Toronto do? 
I mean, this is not a new phenomenon. We were talking with some of the folks from the London Real Estate Association, I guess, a couple of weeks ago on the program, and they were talking about the huge influx and the rising prices. And, and they said, you know, again, it's people from Toronto. It's almost the, there's a migration right along the 401, isn't there, Brian? It's been going on for years. You know, they stopped in Mississauga, and then, as you say, it was Milton and then Guelph and KW, and they're moving all the way down to London right now. I mean, it's it's, it's Toronto's a fabulous city. We love it, and, you know, it's, it's one of the great cities in the world. Uh, but it's becoming awfully unaffordable for an awful lot of people and I guess they're looking for alternatives exactly and there's this idea and you hear it sometimes thrown around you drive along the 401 or the QEW until you qualify for a mortgage but I think with (laughs) Hamilton again there's something a little bit different about that because you may well be able to afford a house a little bit closer to Toronto right in Mm -hmm. a more newer suburb um, in, in, in a in a you know auto-oriented community. But if you're skipping over some of those places and you're actually moving to neighborhoods in and around downtown Hamilton, that's a little bit different dynamic than simply driving further out until you qualify for a mortgage. So this is sort of the starting point of this project. And we want to investigate actually to what extent that aesthetic, that urban environment is playing a role in people's decisions to move from Toronto to Hamilton. I should also point out that there's a lot of suburban to suburban migration that we've seen in some of the data that we're starting to analyze now. So people moving from Peel region to the the sort of, you know, Dundas or, or um, Stony Creek, places like that around. Well, I, I, um, Brian, I see it. I live in Ancaster and I see this. I know a lot of my new neighbors are, are from the GTA. Exactly. And this is something when we talk about this move to Hamilton, we have in our minds this idea of, you know, maybe someone who who was living in Liberty Village in downtown Toronto in a condo, and they can't afford a house, say, in the Junction or in Bloor West Village, and so they move to Lock Street or they move out to, you know, James Street North in Hamilton. And yes, that's definitely happening, but I think there's other forms of migration that don't get talked about as much that may actually be more numerous in, in again, the example that you cite. Uh, so again, we want to investigate that and we want to speak with people who've, who've done any kind of move over the last five years from the GTA to Hamilton, whether that be downtown Hamilton, whether that be Ancaster, Dundas, the mountain, wherever. We're interested in hearing those experiences and, and those, those reasons for moving for whoever's done that, that move. I mean, this is something, there's a historical significance and, and there's a record here of these things going on. But one of the key things that I think that had to happen here, and I'm sure you're going to address this in the study too, Brian, is is why all of a sudden did Hamilton become a popular destination? Because let's face it, there were a lot of people uh, in the Toronto area, in the GTA, that looked down on Hamilton. Oh, it's a steel city. It's dirty. It doesn't have any culture. But, you know, it's, you've heard all these things. Uh, and, and, and there were some dark days, I guess, for Hamilton. You know, when the industrial revolution turned into the rust revolution, and we, you know, but we've we've pivoted. And I think a lot of people, but you, you've got to see it to believe it. I guess more people, I guess, are starting to see it now. Exactly, and that's one of the things we want to investigate. And and again, comes back to that idea of you know, those older neighborhoods in Hamilton have some of those aesthetic qualities. They have some of those mobility options, right? Because you can walk, you can cycle, you can drive, you, there's, there's decent transit, uh, which you don't get everywhere in, in the city of Hamilton. Um, and you can't, you know, most people simply can't afford that in Toronto. So if you can't afford that, and, you know, what we've seen in Toronto over the last 20 years is that the gentrification has sort of spread further out from those core neighborhoods in and around downtown, so that now you can be, um, you know, Maine and Danforth in the East End and pay well over a million dollars for a very, you know, basic, um, you know, house that was originally, originally built for someone working in a factory. So most people can't afford that now. If they want that kind of lifestyle, where else can you go? 
and Hamilton is one of those places where you can actually have that kind of aesthetic. And maybe that's helping to shift that narrative about the city, right? And, and create a new narrative of, of this post-industrial place, which doesn't mean everyone's part of the uh, part of the ride, so to speak, right? This is creating its own set of challenges of affordability in Hamilton. And you get this sort of ripple effect. Um, but it certainly, I think that, that older aesthetic is uh, is important to understanding some of these current dynamics. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm you're preaching to the choir here because I mean, I was born and raised here in this city, so I understand the character and I've seen the the ups and downs. But you're right. I mean, I I'm amazed when people from out of town come and actually see, for instance, the downtown core and some of the the great neighborhoods. You know, those classic old houses that you know, some of them a hundred years old and and you know. The, and they're affordable for the most part. I mean, a lot more affordable than they are in Toronto, too. The other element to this, and you mentioned about, you know, somebody who maybe in, is in Liberty Village in Toronto. And uh, that's not too far, of course, away from the Rogers Centre for people that don't know. I guess it's the Scotiabank Centre now. Uh, but there's, a, there's, there's, there's an alternative here. There are condos here in the Hamilton area. And if you're living, you know, you don't need a car. I mean, as you say, there's transit options downtown, uh, walking distance to Lock Street, to other places like that, too. It's, I can see the attraction here. Exactly. And, you know, in this age of the pandemic, and as we've talked about, you know, this migration has been going on for a long time. This is nothing new. We've been talking about this migration for, for at least a, a decade. And, you know, it's accelerating. It was accelerating before the pandemic. But I think what's happening now is people are starting to reevaluate some of their housing choices based around the pandemic. And mid-sized cities like Hamilton actually offer some of the things that a big city like Toronto doesn't have, like more space more and, and a, a more affordable price. So if anything, I think what's happening today, we're going to see an acceleration of these trends moving moving forward. And, and we're hoping to find out more about this, um, particularly with the next census in 2021, where we can actually look at migration before and after the pandemic. Brian, what about the evaluation of, of, of what's happening here, whether it's good, bad uh, for individuals, for community? I, I mean, on the surface, you know, we say, hey, this is great. The population's growing. People are discovering this area, for instance. Uh, but there are ramifications to, to gentrification at the same time. I mean, you know, prices go up, and that makes the, if you're already living there, you feel, hey, my, my value of my house has gone up. Uh, but there's a question of affordability for the people that have been there for a long time. There's a question of uh, a chain reaction here that some people are going to say, you know what, I can't afford this anymore. I'm going to have to find a place for me to live. Where am I going to go now? Well, that's just it. Gentrification, the impacts of it vary depending on who you are. So if you can afford these uh, neighborhoods, you can afford this lifestyle, it, it gives you a lot of nice things. For a lot of other people, however, the consequences are primarily negative. We're seeing a loss of affordable housing. We're seeing prices rising. Uh, we're seeing displacement as people are removed from their houses. If they're, you know, an old rooming house is being renovated and turned into a house that can be sold to a, a, a professional couple. So the impact of it is definitely varied. And for a lot of poor people, for a lot of lower income people, the, the, the consequences are negative. You know, you can get nice restaurants in your neighborhood, but if you can't afford to eat at them, what's the benefit for you? 
And if you're one of those people that says, I can't afford this anymore, your, your point's well taken. Where do they go? Where do you find something that is affordable? All of a sudden, there's going to be a migration that's already started, from what I've been told, away from Hamilton now, from some of those people that are saying, I, where am I, do I go down Niagara Way? Do I go towards Lake Erie? Where do I go to try to find something that, that's got an affordable housing situation for me, which may or may not have the amenities that they were used to here, but you know they're, they're being forced into a situation like that? Well, that's just it. And it's not just lacking the amenities, but it's moving further away from your jobs, yeah. right? If you're working in, down, in Hamilton and you can't afford the new prices because prices are going up, so you move further out, so then you, you're forced to have a long commute back to your job, which also has implications for yourself, but also for society as well. This creates more traffic congestion. This creates more pollution because people are driving farther. And so if we're talking about solutions to gentrification, you know, it's not to say that we should go back to the way things were. But we need to think about housing in a different context. We need to think about provisions to ensure that people have the right to stay put in their neighborhoods. We have adequate funding to build affordable housing. Um, and we have to think about ways that can reduce speculation on the housing market, which, which drives up prices. So, yes, absolutely. We're seeing a further ripple effect outside of Hamilton. And again, this is anecdotal, so maybe this is another aspect of the research to continue to explore in places like St. Catharines or Brantford or uh, further afield. Um, but we're seeing this continual ripple effect as prices get higher, um, you know, originating from Toronto, but then that has an effect across southern Ontario. Brian, the government's doing enough to accommodate the, this, this change. I, for instance, you just mentioned one element of this that I think is very important, is, is we seem now either willing to or just you know having been forced into the fact that we can't live where we work, near where we work. I mean, that used to happen. I, in my father's generation way back when, I mean, I remember he used to walk to work uh, from where he lived, and, you know, just a few blocks. Uh, now, you know, you're talking sometimes an hour, hour and a half commute to get to your job because that's where the affordable housing is, but that's where the paycheck is, uh, which means there has to be an increase in public transit. There has to be, as you say, a number of other amenities that are put in place, and, and I, I'm wondering whether or not government's keeping up with this. No, I don't think they are. Uh, I think there are some interesting strategies at the municipal level that are being developed, but provincially and federally, no, they are not. We don't have a, a genuine um, strategy or funding at, at a national level to, to build new affordable housing. Uh, we don't have strategies to work to maintain and protect the existing affordable housing that we have. There are interesting initiatives, small scale. Um, I think things like building you know affordable housing um, on publicly owned land is an interesting approach that cities could adopt um, and building a range of different housing options that aren't just you know the increasingly expensive single family home and the tall condominium which is primarily bought by investors and rented out we need to be a bit more creative in thinking about how we approach housing and how we approach the assets that we all collectively own, like publicly owned land. Uh, and Hamilton, there's abundance of publicly owned land, um, particularly owned by Metrolinx in the plans for yeah. the LRT. There's also city-owned land and so on. And this could be a potential solution to create the kind of housing that meets those challenges and those needs of, of local communities. Probably we've just kind of scratched the surface on a lot of the stuff that you're going to be studying. i got about a minute left, but I just want our listeners to understand, uh, you're, this is the long game for you, isn't it? This is going to take a while to do this study. Uh, it's, it's not weeks or, or, or months that these, this is going to go on for quite some time. 
it is. This is a four-year research project. And what we're doing to start out is we're looking for people who have moved over the last five years from the GTA to Hamilton. Doesn't matter where in the GTA, doesn't matter where in Hamilton. Um, if you're interested in participating in an, in an interview, a video interview, and sharing some of these experiences, you can get in touch. Uh, you can email me directly at brian.doucette at uwaterloo.ca. Um, and then we're hoping to follow up with a second round of interviews a couple years later, see how things have changed with people's own lives, their own experiences. We're also looking to interview people who are living in neighborhoods where a lot of gentrification is happening. And there's other aspects of the project as well. This is a long-term process, and so it requires you know, an in-depth study, which, which takes uh, three or four years. But if you're interested in participating, please get in touch, and we can uh, arrange a video interview very quickly and, and hopefully get more insights into why people are making this move their experiences and and uh, how they connect with the GTA and with the, their new homes in Hamilton. I know you're also uh, collaborating with a couple of uh, Mac professors, uh, Jim Dunn and Richard Harris, who've done an awful lot of work on urban studies. The Hamilton Community Foundation are partners, and uh, the city's uh, planning and economic development department as well. So uh, it's a great team. Uh, we're just about out of time here. I want to stay in touch as this develops over the next little while, Brian. Uh, it's a fascinating Absolutely. study, and it's going to be very insightful as we move forward as a community here as to how we should move forward and what we need to do to make it a successful uh, enterprise as well. So uh, thank you again for this today, and I know we'll talk again soon. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. Take care. Dr. Brian Doucette, of course, the research chair uh, from the University of Waterloo on this incredible study about gentrification. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The tent encampments that, uh, that London, Hamilton, Toronto, and just about every other city uh, in Ontario are starting to face right now has become a concern and a problem. Uh, there's a reason why those people are there, and that has to be part of the discussion, certainly. But uh, there's got to be a solution for this, too. About a week or so ago, reported, uh, we reported rather that Hamilton City Council had seemingly reached an agreement, a protocol, uh, that was going to uh, solve this problem, at least in the short term anyway. Uh, notwithstanding that, it uh, was a topic of discussion at the General Issues Committee meeting at ha with Hamilton City Councilors just the other day, and a lot of frustration uh, being expressed by a number of city councilors. Emergency Operations Director Paul Johnson says they're going to be focusing on certain areas first, and it should take about a week for people living within these encampments in prohibited areas actually to move into other facilities. Here's Paul Johnson. Ferguson Avenue, First Ontario, uh, and and Whitehern. Although I think Whitehern has uh, has dwindled down to nothing, but we'll be focusing our efforts in those areas first because uh, those are actually now prohibited areas for encampments. But um, we'll we'll have a few days of working with folks so that we can start to move them towards uh, the shelter that they need, uh, either in our emergency shelter system or in the hotels that we've procured. And it's it's not just a downtown problem. It's uh, as we've heard and as we've reported over the last couple of weeks, there are other areas of the city that have these encampments as well, and a number of councillors are getting a little short, I guess, with patience. Uh, I want to bring Jason Farr into the conversation. Jason is the councillor for Ward Two, the downtown area of Hamilton, uh, who has been uh, intimately involved in this discussion right from the beginning. Uh, Jay, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. I appreciate the opportunity. I really do on this one, Bill. Thank you. Well, I know that you've been trying to, to work with city staff. You've been trying to work with uh, the, the other folks, too, from the Hamilton Social uh, Medicine Response Team and the Harm Reduction Group and Keeping Six. I know there have been a number of different discussions and meetings, uh, and you're trying to find something that's going to address some of the concerns, but at the same time uh, do something about the encampments itself. But I get the sense from some of the stuff I saw yesterday, Jay, that uh, some of your council colleagues are, uh, well, they're running out of patience and they're getting a little ticked off at this whole thing. 
Well, it's been one of, the, I would suggest, uh, I can speak for myself, the probably most difficult issue I'll ever have to deal with as an elected official. There's a lot of sensitive pieces, and, and particularly when overwhelmingly you're hearing from residents and business people and business leaders that, uh, you know, are very concerned about the acute issues that popped up since the injunction especially occurred and, you know, over a hundred tents appeared, most of them in the downtown core. And you're trying to address those issues, but you're also dealing with a closed session matter because it's a court case and you know how that works, Bill. We've mm -hmm. got to deal with these things in private because lawyers and so forth are involved. So it's been incredibly hard to communicate. I'm so glad we're at a point now where I'm able to, to, to communicate some of the details of, on, on both sides of the issue. Well, let's talk about that because we talked with some of the folks from uh, Keeping Six last week, uh, and they were pleased. And and you know, one of the things that had to happen, I guess, was the legality of actually removing the injunction, and and so that's happening uh, because of the, the the compromise that was reached. But uh, coming to an agreement is only part of the deal, as you know, Jay. Part two of that is implementing it, and is it happening in a way that that, that you envisioned? Is it happening in 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 the timely fashion that you wanted to see it happen? Well, I, I'm being told by our staff, and there's a lot of very qualified people, there's a lot I've learned about this issue, uh, that that's going to happen in, in a week. You're going to see 75 to 80% of the issue on City Streets, Ferguson and York and downtown and any museum, Whitehorn included. And as Paul said in his clip, it looks like it's near done, if not done, uh, in, in our museum and other places throughout the city. You're going to see that this is a greatly mitigated issue for those who felt that it, it was uh, severely impacting the, the localized areas where encampments were incurring. So, uh, you know, there has been there, there will be engagement in that time. We do have, and we have always had, Bill, facilities. We have, uh, I think, about 100 shelter spaces right now, mostly for men. We have lots of hotel spaces, a lot of them for women and families. So we've never had a problem of not having adequate resources. I think Toronto, early on in the pandemic, did. Um, we have never had that problem. We don't today. We won't tomorrow. And so that helps in terms of making this as seamless and painless as possible for those who are encamped, but also, obviously, for those anxious to see these encampments disbanded. I know you've taken your tours, and Ferguson Street right now looks like about 100 tents. There's tents on top of tents, and it's a mess. And there's unfortunate acute issues attached to that that are uh, unlawful. There are health issues. There are a lot of folks that are concerned, that have been concerned, that continue to be concerned. And, you know, those concerns will be greatly mitigated, if not eliminated, in, in a short order for the large majority of the issues. And both sides, obviously, Bill, recognize that there's 20, 25 percent of uh, high acuity individuals that are going to take a little more care, but it's going to be a whole lot easier dialoguing, engaging, and, and, and helping through outreach, whether it's through the city or our partners that are willing and have always been willing to work with us, not partners who haven't, uh, but the majority of them do, to be able to go in and, 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 and get them you know, in the on the right track. Social Navigator is a great example. You know, the police uh, with our Social Navigator program, we only have one. I think we need three, and that would probably really assist us. But it's it's going to be a lot easier. Uh, and and it's it's the city through this agreement that will be assessing who is high acuity. It won't be anyone else. Uh, we have the expertise to do it. And once we get to that point, I think we're we're on the road to. Uh, probably setting some standards as far as big cities go and addressing encampment and tenting issues. Okay, but let me ask you something, though, because mm -hmm. you just mentioned a second ago that the city has and continues to have uh, enough spaces for these people. Uh, with, if, if that was the case, how did we get to this point? Why, why didn't we just say, listen, we have a place for you? 
Well, I'm going to give you my theory on that, and that's yeah. why I appreciate being on. And, and, and you've had a lot of conversations with Lisa Nussie, and, and part yeah. of the reason is, again, I, I can't come on the radio and talk to you about this halfway through when we're dealing with a closed session matter, but we're at a point now where there's a resolution. But my theory on that, Bill, and I say this respectfully, Fully, is we have these organizations, Ham Smart Keeping Six, as you mentioned, fairly new organizations of people with lived experiences uh, in keeping six on opioid addiction and with outreach professionals, health people that you've had on your show with respect to Ham Smart. They call on downtown law firm Ross McBride. Uh, they've always told you, on I've listened to all those interviews, that, that this is a health care issue, but they take the municipality, Hamiltonians, to court, not their bosses in health care. Oh, no, uh, to Superior Court. It's us that they take, even though they say this is a health care issue, and you and I both know, and everyone knows, we don't provide health care municipally. The province does. So the funder is not providing the adequate services that they're fighting for, that everyone's been fighting for. You might want to deal with them in court, but they didn't. And they've also stated publicly on your program that they tried they tried and got nowhere. So they have stated publicly they tried in the past. So they go after the municipality. They go after our bylaws that we have to enforce encampments sensitively as we always have. And in fact, with an encampment task force that we ratified as a council uh, to address these issues, encampment and encampment-related activities. And all the while, strangely stating publicly, this is what they didn't tell your program, they're asking for 100 tents in a tent drive. So you're asking me, how did it happen? How did it get like this? That's a big part of the issue. When you've got a website that's pleading to the public, if you're ham smarter, keeping six, especially early on, they actually took, took it down after we started negotiation. Here's, here's what they said. Thanks to all of you. This is a, a, a early on a correspondence on their website. We've received $815 in donations and 14 tents to date. Well on our way to our goal of 100 tents or $5,000. <laughs> when I saw that, I'm thinking, well, you're not working with us here. I mean, you're, you're exasperating the problem. There's no doubt about it when you're doing a tent drive online. And, and that's why you see, I believe they reached their goal of 100 tents, which is why they took down the one of the reasons why they took down that request to the public, they, they were very successful in that 110 tent drive. And that 100 tents, those 100 tents, again, the large majority are not high acuity, but they cause a great deal of consternation, and especially in the adjacent communities, hundreds of residents and, and many businesses dramatically affected. And that's a lot of information that's not public yet either. But as far as police and uh, EMS calls. We we released EMS calls. They went up 86% at the FOC during the injunction period. The police stats I've asked for formally in a motion to be released so people can get an understanding that while we really went out of our way uh, with a great deal of time and expense to address those acute issues day and night because 100 or more tents appeared all of a sudden when the injunction hit, the, the issues are, are actually quite scary. And I heard from residents almost every day and the the, the prevailing theme was the fear of living close to or having to work close to what what was occurring, unfortunately, in the larger encampment areas, Bill. All right, let me ask you about that then. Sure. Uh, I, first of all, uh, and I'm going to use one of the words that a couple of your different uh, fellow councillors have used. They said this is really being motivated by a word that gets bandied around an awful lot these days. These are activists. Uh, is this political then? Is that what you're telling me? I I wouldn't. I, I didn't say that. I think that was Councillor Collins. And, and that's fine. I mean, we all define maybe activism differently. I actually support activism. I'm, I'm fine with activism uh, in all forms. Anarchies, it's a little different, <laughs> a little out of control in my opinion. But there's nothing wrong with activism. In, in this case, I think 
Councillor Collins was referring to the fact that the activism got out of hand. It, it became a municipal issue in a court of law that we couldn't control because a superior court judge, without our ability twice on the injunction request to defend ourselves legally, they, they did it solo, um, created this I- issue. And I think the point that Councillor Collins, you'd have to ask him directly, was trying to make is they created the controversy. They created through their activism as activists um, this unfortunate scenario that caused a lot of upset in our community. But these are people that are homeless. Absolutely. And, and you know, he's been a leader. And, 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 COVID, and COVID was a factor. As I've said with so many other th- different things that, that have happened here, uh, COVID didn't create the homeless crisis, but it certainly exacerbated it, and I think that's what's happened. But uh, you're in the same boat that, that London is and Windsor is, that, that uh, Toronto is. Uh, it may be provincial as far as health is concerned and, and the dollars for health, uh, but this is your community, and you're going to wear this, and you're going to have to find a solution to it. And, and, and that's something we've been working on long before the injunction ever came to play. Like I said, Bill, we've, we've, we have as a council endorsed, uh, and, and our encampment task force work. And I encourage people to, you know, just Google that on Hamilton.ca and you'll see that's a, that's pretty good stuff that we're doing and some of it very innovative. And we have historically worked with things like, uh, you know, celebrated programs across the country, like that social navigator program, like Coast, like other things. So it's not like we've ever ignored the issue. Uh, this, issue was created by an injunction that was requested by a downtown law firm ross mcbride and it was they were successful and and it was created by a tent drive for a hundred tents and they were successful and i'll tell you the one difference we are from any other of the cities you mentioned and many others and i agree uh more acute because of COVID, but still always present and always will be none of the cities had to endure what we had to endure on public gateways or in front of residents hundreds of residents living every day and night with with a hundred tents out front their property no no city has had to deal with that i mean, we i've asked that question it's publicly been uh addressed it was investigated by our staff no city has had to go through what uh, these folks put hamilton through so you mentioned there's a time frame for this right now paul johnson the clip that we played just before you joined us talked mm-hmm. about that you, you about a week or so uh what if they don't leave we have uh, the ability to enforce our laws. I would hate for, I, I agree with Cam Smart. I agree with Dr. Jill and Lisa and all the folks that have been on your program. I would hate to see it come to that. But we have, they have agreed to uh, a settlement that gives us the right to defend our bylaws, to enforce our bylaws. Well, we got our bylaws back, Bill. And so if they don't want to leave, it, it would be very unfortunate. I would suspect it would be a rare case because, again, we have always had, we continue to have, and we will always have safer and more humane opportunities in this city. We're better than most cities at addressing this issue. It'll never go away, unfortunately. It's been around since cities have been around homelessness. It's very unfortunate. But we're very good at tackling the issue when we have safer and more humane conditions available. We'll hope that most of them take take us up on that. But it's time to enforce our bylaws. It, it, this has to end. It's very, very unfortunate. When, when council approves my motion, which I assume they will, I can't see why we would want to suppress police statistics, you're going to see the impacts of what's occurred since July 30th 
and Judge Perioski's uh, motion to to prevent us from enforcing our bylaws. And so you got to weigh those things out. We're going to do things sensitively, as we always have. We're going to work with our partners. But you know, the word is already out, and we're already we've already done that work, and we're already doing that work and communicating with those who have chosen to live all summer in tents. Which is going to change anyway. I mean, the weather's going to get colder eventually, and we have to look at some long-term ramifications and some long-term solutions to this as well. Good point. Uh, but you do acknowledge, and, and I'm asking you now, because I know some of your council colleagues are, are not even on side on this, that, that there is a mental health aspect to this. There is a homelessness aspect to this. I mean, some of these people are victims as well and, and needed to be treated as such. Absolutely. I completely agree that mental drug addiction, opioid addiction is a health issue. I agree with the, the appellants that we had on this case. Health issues are, are taken care of, funded and taken care of by the province. They tried for years and got nowhere and took the municipality to court. But I absolutely agree with them. And, and absolutely, I agree that the, the problem exists. You're talking to the councillor that moved the safe injection site. You're talking to the councillor that's putting hundreds of new affordable housing projects in the ward and working on city housing for three terms now who really recognizes that the real the true way to solve the issue i completely agree with lisa nussi the the midwife uh, from the shelter health network who's been on your program many times yep. we need more housing every city needs more housing there's a reason why the federal government says we're going to put 40 billion towards that I'd like to see at least a billion of that in the next you know six days but it isn't going to happen unfortunately but everyone recognizes that it's also a housing issue bill and i'm really glad that you've focused on that part of it as well well look at I, my first term on council 1997 we started going after the federal government for housing and it, here we are how many years 23 mm. years later and and we're not that much farther ahead and i get that and the province and the feds have dropped the ball on that but that's not going to help you this week no uh, all those announcements are not going to help you this week so you got to find something in the short term uh, now you're going to put a roof over most of these people's heads or at least offer them one anyway they're available uh, and, and, hotels shelter space we got about 100 shelter spaces what about we services for them well, many, many of these people are, are in need of, of, of public health services uh, addiction uh, counseling things of this nature uh, what happens there well that's where outreach so part of the deal as well great question uh, so now we, we focus, we're focused on 25% of the individuals we see out there now who are high acuity, like you say, uh, mental health, drug addiction issues, Bill. Part of the settlement is daily, the appellants as outreach workers, very qualified in addressing just what you're talking about. And, and, and the, the, those daily needs, they're required daily to, 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 to work with those who are high acuity. So, so they'll be making, they'll be making, live rough. They'll be making house calls, in other words, because obviously they're all in one group right now. That's going to be scattered. Yes, to the point of a maximum of five. So so you won't see ever again in the city, I hope. I mean, you never know where, where things are going to go. But, I mean, this settlement says you won't see anything more than a maximum of five uh, tents. So there won't be like what Ferguson is now, which, which again, this has caused a great deal of consternation. And you feel comfortable that this template that you're developing here right now is something that other communities that are dealing with this uh, might be, be able to employ in their communities as well? It'd be interesting, Bill. You know what I'm watching closely, and I think you will too, is the Toronto court. So they have an injunction request before them, and in one week a judge is going to decide. And the judge has publicly said, I don't even know if this is in my purview. So I'll be watching that very closely. But but also, the judge has made comments in suggesting that it's not, it's not 
a, a good practice to continue to just move people along. It's harder to help them on a daily basis when you continue to move them along and they, they're, they're harder, it's harder for the outreach people to do their work. So, you know, I'm trying to be fair in, in, in looking at how this plays out, but it, it, it's pretty significant. A lot of people were watching Hamilton during this uh, uh, unfortunate court case that led to, you know, so many tents in our, our, our major corridors and in front of a whole lot of residential in Hamilton over the course of the summer and since July 30th. Now I think the attention is turning to where is Toronto going to go on this and all of the nation will be watching on this as well. But Bill, it's more than uh, a bylaw issue in enforcing the, the two or three bylaws we have associated to allow us the ability to recognize there's issues created and, and to work with uh, mitigating those issues or eliminating those issues of tents on public property. We have that ability to do that again. But it's also, uh, you know, I think, as you say, a huge health care issue that the province needs to recognize and start working with people on and, and directly uh, uh, associating that work and that investment towards this homelessness issue. Uh, and, and it's going to be very interesting to see uh, how, how things play out in Toronto and, and, and who really should be assuming uh, um, oversight of, of this issue going forward. I mean, you're talking about in Toronto, they're defending themselves right now against this injunction, this possible injunction, talking about what they've seen in, in the increases in crime and violence and gun possession charges, assault, sexual assault, all of this stuff that they're laying out there to the judge saying, you can't tell us we can't enforce our laws. Um, but it's also a, a city planning issue. We don't have any planning policy that says these areas are specifically dedicated towards or they allow mid-rise mixed-use development plus tents. Tents aren't part of planning policy. They're not no, in the Jay, municipal act. Jay, we're just about out of time. We're just about out of time. Yeah, we'll follow no this story with you. And I know that you and a number of your colleagues are frustrated about the injunction, etc. But uh, it, it did bring this to a head, and, and maybe that's the beginning of a solution to this. And we'll track this over the next few weeks. I appreciate your time today. I really appreciate the invitation, Bill, and, and your attention to this, as always. Jason Fireworth, Council for Downtown. Thanks again, Jay. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, the numbers are not trending well, for us, uh, when you start looking at the uh, number of new cases of COVID-19, especially here in Ontario, Quebec, of course, is just off the charts. Uh, but we're not too far behind. I know there's been a slight decrease in the last couple of days. But in his daily briefings, uh, Premier Doug Ford has said that, uh, you know, heading into the Thanksgiving weekend, well, he's concerned. You're concerned because people are getting together and they're getting together in some cases with, with large groups and extended family. And there's a lot of, you know, contact and hugging and kissing and everything else. And we're just asking people as hard as it is and then when possible please just stick with your household as i as i mentioned in our household none of the girls the two girls that live with me it's just going to be them and my myself and my wife and yeah is it, is it tough on everyone sure is it tough on our family yeah it is but we got to do what we have to do I'm not so sure that we want to do what uh, we have to do, at least uh, from the, some of the feedback I've been getting over the last little while, and it's probably reflected in some of the new cases uh, that we've heard about in the last bit. Some are suggesting that uh, this could end up being a runaway train and we could start having these huge, huge increases uh, like we saw back in the springtime or like we've seen with our neighbours to the south. Let's uh, talk about that. Uh, pleased to welcome back to the program health policy expert Dr. Ahmad Firas Khalid. Uh, doctor, thank you for the time. Great to have you with us today. Are, are you as concerned as the Premier seems to be about uh, this coming weekend? Thank you for having me, Bill. Yeah, I am concerned. I think that the most public health experts are, are concerned on what this means for our numbers because the numbers are increasing. We're seeing much higher numbers than we anticipated this time of the year. 
Uh, and I think social gatherings, the risk there, what we're worried about is that if one person is infected, even if you're less than 10 people in one place, is that you might leave that household and then infect your own bubbles. Um, and so it's just a matter of being proactive and really making sure that we don't increase the numbers. Do you know what's interesting about this? Uh, because a lot of the stuff we hear about super spreaders and, as you say, uh, you know, the spread of the it's, – it's, I think, in the abstract to an awful lot of us. And the, the one case that maybe we've learned from in this, Doctor, is was that Rose Garden thing at the White House a couple of weeks ago uh, with no masks and no social distancing. And we saw – and we have actually seen uh, what's happened as a result. I mean, 14 of the uh, 25 people, I think, that uh, in the White House that now have COVID were at that event. Uh, and, of course, they're not contact tracing, so we don't know how many other people have been infected. But that's how quickly this virus can act. Absolutely. I mean, that's a really good point to make. The virus does not care about your own wanting to get together in a social gathering. I mean, listen, the reality is I think we're all frustrated with how long this virus has been going on or this pandemic and the impact and the toll it has taken on our ability to gather together with our friends and family, especially with family. I think that's been a huge, huge issue. And, and there are, will be people out there that will say, well, I've never been affected by COVID-19 so far, and I'm going to meet with my family over Thanksgiving. And I think the messaging here is that it's not a matter of you not being infected. It's the potential for you to infect others who might not survive it. You know, President Donald Trump was lucky to survive it because he, he had at his disposal the best health care possible in the entire world by virtue of being the president of the United States. The same cannot be said for all of us. We cannot take that risk. And so we're just trying, I think everybody involved is trying to make sure that the numbers don't go out of control when we overwhelm our healthcare system over Thanksgiving break because we decided to have a large gathering of people in our household. Well, and, you know, to, to your point, uh, you know, as we've learned more about the virus and the impact that it has on our bodies, we have to be cautious. I mean, you know, here's the president right now, who, you know, five days after he was uh, rushed to hospital by, uh, by basically air ambulance, it was his helicopter, of course, but uh, he's saying he's cured. And, and first of all, I don't know anybody aside from his personal physician that tends to agree with that. But, you know, I, I take a case in point, his good friend Herman Cain, who went to that, uh, that rally, a couple of months ago in uh, in and 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 said you know he he contracted covid and it was said the same things about a week later that Donald Trump was saying I feel fine I feel great 3 days later he was dead uh, because yeah. we told now that there that just as we're talking about a second wave here in our communities uh it seems as if there was a second wave with covid within the body too yeah i mean this is where the evidence is still emerging and it's not crystal clear about what exactly is happening but we are getting early uh, research findings that are saying that COVID-19 actually might have a toll on the human body more so than what we know right now. So as of now, we don't really know the long-term effect. If somebody gets COVID-19 and then they feel better in quotation or they think they're cured, are they really cured? It doesn't really have an impact on your body in the long term. We still don't know that. The data is still not there that's conclusive to that. But the indication are that there might be some actually long-term implications on human body that we don't know. So the point I'm trying to make here is that this is still an, a very much unknown virus. Although we've been living with this for quite some time now, we still actually there's a lot we need to figure out about its impact on our health system but, and also our bodies and how we're going to react to it in long term. The similar, similar example to this that I can give, Bill, is like HIV. You know, when HIV first emerged, we didn't, we thought that, you know, if you give the right medication, you can get to a very much lower viral load, which in, in that essence, not necessarily means you're cured, but you have a very low viral load of it. And only after many studies that we realized the impact HIV can have in the human body long term. That took some time. The same can be said about COVID-19. 
And there's so much mixed messaging coming out of here, too. And I know we tend to be focusing on, on what's happening with Trump, but, I mean, that's where a lot of, the, I think, the misinformation is coming from. And some people are grabbing onto that. I mean, it is his little 15-minute missive, rambling missive that he made yesterday, the video that he did, uh, he talked about being cured. And his doctor, Dr. Conley, said, yeah, we did a blood test and we found antibodies. And the other doctor said, those are the antibodies he was injected with. He has not developed those. You can't do that at this stage. Uh, we we, we we, we've got to be cautious, I guess, here, Doctor, with all the stuff coming out, uh, to listen to the science, to listen to the to the, the people that are the experts in this, the, the the people that have been studying this and know something about what's going on with the human body and something about viruses. Absolutely. And I think that's why you saw Joe Biden's uh, last tweet is that follow the science. I mean, it was very simple and very pointed. Barack Obama at the beginning of the pandemic, I actually have that quote up in my office. Uh, if, in, if in doubt, follow the science. And there's a reason why, especially here in Canada, I mean, we're a nation uh, that's always sort of championed the use of evidence. I mean, you know, evidence-based medicine was created at McMaster University. We've always been sort of uh, the pioneers about ad- adopting evidence-informed decision-making across all, all sectors. So it's much easier for us here in Canada to say, of course, we will follow science. I don't think it's the same in the U.S. I think that we're seeing that you know, the, the championing of science is a difficult, challenging course. And when the leadership doesn't stand behind the science, it makes it difficult for others to follow suit. How do we get people back in line here, Doctor? I mean, you know, the, the, one of the, the the most lax elements of this, I think, is social distancing. I just don't see a whole lot of people doing that much anymore unless unless they're standing in line at the grocery store. And so that's the, there's the stack right there. That's where you stay. Uh, we're getting a little sloppy about that. Mask wearing, I think, we're not doing too badly at. Uh, but but it's the gatherings, I think, that, that are really uh, of concern to us. Do, do we have to get whacked in the head before we're going to realize this? Do we have to see a big spike after Thanksgiving to realize that, hey, maybe we need to get serious about this? Well, first, I think I would say that we need to acknowledge the people who have done a good job of social distancing and face masks. We're very good at saying, you know, for those who haven't done it, shame on you. But we don't acknowledge people that have been following the rules. So, uh, you know, that's important. But second, Bill, I think there is a time now for the government to explore legal implications for people who are not abiding by the rules uh, because you're jeopardizing population health. That conversation I know is happening at different levels, uh, and it's going to be very interesting to watch that closely to see that, you know, if are going to be harsher fines to people that don't follow the rules being set out? Are we really doing a crackdown on people that come into our country from overseas and not abiding by the 14 real rule quarantine? Uh, there are many, many of those policy implications that we have out there need to be enforced if the numbers continue to rise, and that's just the way it is. There's, a, I think, an inevitability to that, isn't there? I mean, you know, when they passed the seatbelt law way back when, they didn't say we'd really like you to do that. They said if you don't, here's what we're going to, you're going to get fined. And, and I know that sounds like a heavy-handed to some people, but boy, at, at some point, you, if, if compliance is not going to be forthcoming, uh, you've got to insist on compliance and, pen, and penalize those who refuse to. Well, you have to for two main reasons. First of all, it's population health. Uh, and this is jeopardizing the, the health of the, our population overall because one person gets COVID-19, infects uh, many, many other people. One of those people might die. And so that's serious. That's a very serious implication. And second, if you don't want to look at it from a health perspective, you also look at it from an economical perspective. Many of us have friends who have small businesses or you're a small business owner or a large business owner. You don't want a full lockdown again. Uh, and the government has full liberty to do that, to shut things back up. And if the numbers continue to rise, uh, I will not be surprised if we do go back into a full lockdown like Quebec, 
Uh, and so we need to be careful with that narrative. We need to, this is part of the, to your earlier message, Bill, about, uh, sorry, question about what can we tell people. This is, this is what we can tell people, that their implications are not great. And so let's try to really get ahead of this. I mean, I'll tell you the truth. I was planning to get together with eight other people, uh, different households in my family. I quickly, looking at the numbers, canceled everything and will stay only within my own household for Thanksgiving. I think the same needs to be applied to everybody else. And, and to that point, I mean, the, we know the Premier's getting a lot of pressure right now from uh, the Ontario Nurses Association, the Ontario Medical Association, and, and some of the hospitals uh, to do a total shutdown, to say, hey, stop this before it gets out of hand. Uh, he's resisting at this stage and simply saying what, what you're suggesting, Doctor, he's going to go after the bad actors, those that are, are in noncompliance. We're going to have to start finding them. But he doesn't want to do the shutdown because he knows the ramifications of it. But uh, he may be forced to if the numbers continue to rise like they did in the springtime. Absolutely. I think that's definitely on the decision agenda. They're definitely considering that. There is a massive amount of pressure from epidemiologists and public health experts warning uh, that this shutdown needs to happen because the numbers are just scary and we need to get ahead of it. And we will not be the first country to do that. All countries around the world have gone back and forward in some respects to lockdown, partial lockdown to full lockdown. That, that We know it's effective because we've tried it in the past and we know that that's one way to get ahead of this, to control the numbers. To, you know, we remember the famous words, flatten the curve and not overwhelm the mm-hmm. system. That's, that's exactly it. And so I, I think the premier is just trying to be careful with the ramifications of a full lockdown. Uh, but I'm not sure it's going to work to go after the bad guys. Like, I'm not, I don't quite frankly, Bill, I don't know how that would work. Like, how do you get go after the bad people? Are you going to knock on people's homes and and make sure they're abiding by the rules. How does that look like? Um, that's going to be difficult and one to watch for sure. Yeah, it sounds pretty good in a press conference, but, uh, you know, in actual fact, you know, trying to do it, I guess, is a whole different situation. Uh, we'll have to leave it here. We're just about out of time. Always a pleasure, always uh, uh, entertaining, and, and always informative when we have you on, Doctor. Thanks so much for the time again today. Thank you. Stay well. Happy Thanksgiving. You too. And happy Thanksgiving to you too. Dr. Ahmad Khalid, uh, policy expert, of course, and uh, a great guest to have on to give us some perspective because there's so much information and misinformation that's flying around out there. Uh, because COVID has such an impact on all of us um, and on, on our bodies too. Even if you have not uh, contracted the disease or the virus yet, uh, it has had an impact. I mean, let's face it, we're self-isolating. A lot of us are still working from home. And with more people working from home during the pandemic, how do we urge people to get up and move around through the course of the day? Well, there's a study from Western University in London that looks at the home workplace, whether it's healthy and how to get people moving. Uh, Kristen Dillon is a part of that. She's a Ph.D. student uh, in the School of Kinesiology, Faculty of Health Sciences at uh, Western University, and uh, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Kristen, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me here. Happy to join. You know from your, your first couple of days at, uh, at university, and I'm sure you were warned during orientation about the freshman 15, you know, changing your habits, you're probably away from home for the first time. I think everybody that went to university got through that. Uh, the phenomenon that a lot of us are dealing with now is the COVID-15. Uh, we're not exercising as much. We're not getting out and doing the things we usually did uh, for a whole lot of reasons. And uh, it, it's not healthy, is it? It is, it is not healthy for sure. Uh after COVID-19 was declared a global pandemic, the, the world definitely came to a halt. So it's pretty easy to assume that due to the, the nature of quarantine and this pandemic and everything, that physical activity levels would drop, as well as the amount of sitting that people are doing uh, is going up. And those aren't good combinations, for sure. 
Well, for a whole lot of reasons, and let's you know get into the health. I'm, I could talk about putting on a few extra pounds because a lot of people I've, I've talked to have done that. But from a cardiovascular standpoint, from a whole lot of other reasons, it's it's very unhealthy to be doing that. Yeah, it's actually two separate problems as well. So um, even just the first week of being in quarantine, so that week kind of ending on March 22nd, uh, nationally Fitbit actually reported a 14% decrease in step counts across Canada which is huge for even the first week of quarantine. So, of course, as the months went on, I'm sure that number continued to go up. Um, But being physically inactive is actually a separate problem from sitting too much. So even if you are getting that 150 minutes of recommended moderate to vigorous physical activity, if you're still spending your eight-hour workday sitting, um, there's additional health consequences associated with that. Such as? Yeah, so short-term, just right away, like work productivity, mental health, muscle soreness and stiffness. And then in the long term, those hours, those minutes really add up over your years of your work time. And it can add to diabetes, cardiovascular disease, um, increased risk of all-cause mortality, so early death. Um, So big, big things that research has proven that too much sitting is associated with. So this is going to be unhealthy, even if you never contract the, 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 the virus itself. I mean, this is a pretty unhealthy circumstance for a lot of us. As you mentioned at the beginning of the, the conversation here, if, if you're working at home, uh, you're not walking probably as much. Uh, that, you know, that it's, it's, I guess, uh, what's the takeaway here? Listen to your smartwatch? Yeah, so a lot of people uh, <laughs> with an Apple Watch or a Fitbit, there's that kind of little alarm that goes off yeah. kind of the last 10 minutes to the hour saying, you haven't gotten your step goal yet or things like that. And that timer is really important. So getting your specific amount of steps per hour as well as throughout the day. So not just kind of loading up all your exercise at one point and then sitting throughout the day is kind of the main thing we're really trying to educate people on is breaking up your sitting uh, is just as important as exercising. I get the warning uh, on my watch every now and then because obviously this is a job where you sit an awful lot anyway. Uh, you know, time to stand and, and pay attention to that because basically what they're doing is just get up and walk around for five minutes uh, just to yeah, get the blood exactly. flowing. And it, it, it's not as if they say, hey, go into the gym and start lifting weights or anything like that. Any kind of exercise is better than no exercise. Yeah, even a lot of people aren't aware of this, but um, sanitary behavior is a lack of energy expenditure and even just standing actually reduces your sanitary behavior so you don't have to do lunges or go for a run or walk at a extravagant pace all you need to do is stand up and sit back down um, a couple times during the hour and that's just that little bit of movement has a lot of benefit yeah, it's it's a, a great study, and I think it's something that uh, probably is not front of mind for an awful lot of us because we got so many other things going on in our lives these days uh, because of the pandemic and the concerns like this. But we have to look after our bodies at, uh, at one way or another. I guess one of the, the benefits of what you're suggesting here, Kirsten, is uh, the healthier we are, the better we are to resist the virus if, in fact, it, uh, we are exposed to it. Yeah, for sure. It's going to have uh, impact on your immune system, uh, energy levels, We're really interested in the relationship between uh, sitting time during the work hours and work productivity um, and quality of life, concentration and focus. Those kind of outcomes is what specifically our study is looking at. So uh, is the study complete now? Uh, It is not complete. We are actually still 
actively recruiting. There's still a couple spots left. We're looking for about 145 people. And if uh, if somebody's interested, how can they get a hold of you? So they can email me at kdillon, so K-D-I-L-L-O-N-9, at uwo.ca. If they're interested in participating or just want more information, I'd be happy to send it their way. Excellent. Kirsten, thank you so much for this. And thank you for this study. This is fabulous. And it's going to be, I think, very helpful information to us going forward as we try to move on from uh, from this uh, pandemic at some point in the future. Anyway, this, the physical aspect of this and, and physical health is going to be such a key part of that. And this is, this is going to go a long way towards helping that. Uh, congratulations and good luck with the rest of the study. Yeah, thank you for so much. And thanks for passing on the message. You bet. Take care, Kirsten. Kirsten Dillon, of course, from uh, Western University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.